This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. My guest at this time to help us unpack this conversation this time around on the COVID report is a former HOD in the Vitz Drama Department when it was known as the Vitz School of Arts. He also terms himself a dreamer, innovator, creator, and healer. His name is Warren Nibi, a very valued friend of the station here at VowFM Voice of Vitz, and he joins me at this time as a guest on the COVID report. Warren, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the COVID report. Good evening. Really great to be with you and congratulations. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the warm reception to the news. But Warren, the reason why I wanted to rope you into this discussion specifically is because I have noted with great interest the consistent nature with which you have leveled criticism towards the way in which measures to contain this virus in the country were applied by those put in charge. You've also been equally critical of the lapsed nature with which many people of society are obeying the regulations that are put in place to help fight COVID-19 in this country. Can you take me through your initial reactions to the speech from President Cyril Ramaphosa this time a week ago when he introduced the tighter regulations of lockdown level three? Oh, wow. I was profoundly disappointed. I thought that the speech and the intervention was late, extremely late. There was every indication that we were going to go through a serious third wave at least six weeks ago, um, and certainly before that as well. If you follow Dr. Ridwan Suleiman on just on Twitter, for instance, all right, um, you know he's a national researcher and he has been extremely generous in providing the statistics that we need every single day. All these indicators were there. And what we know from the rest of the world and other places where there has been success in containment, perhaps New Zealand being by far the best, is that if you act swiftly, soon enough, you can contain the virus. So in your news report, you had someone from the Medical um, Research Council saying that it was too late to do an additional intervention right now. And she's right. It's exploded. And there's very little that can be done to contain um, the rampant um, spread of this, of this virus. Um, and it's the better variant. Uh, it's far more aggressive in its ability to infect people. So, so my sense was far too late that the government has shifted its strategy from saving lives to trying to save the economy in order to save lives. We are in a double bind in this country. Uh, we have a serious unemployment rate. We have a, an economy that is really struggling to find its feet. And that means that people are struggling to put food on the table. But at the same time, we have this virus. Um, so very hard choices. In my view, I think that a serious 10-day lockdown six weeks ago would have broken the cycle of infection and we could have moved on. But what's happened now is that businesses are suffering, universities are suffering, schools are suffering. Every single space is collapsing in many ways because staff are being infected, people have to go into self-isolation, and many people are being admitted to hospital. And so we're not functioning at our best, certainly in Gauteng. But 
Today, the CEO, the director of Netcare, warned that the Western Cape is heading in the same direction in the next three to four weeks. And it will be interesting to see, you know, if maybe government does something differently to try and stop that really strong swing upward in terms of infection rates. Now, I'm latching on to what you've just said now about your hopes for for government to perhaps use what has just happened to us in entering the third wave here in Gauteng in particular as a lesson to put preparational measures in place to stop the Western Cape from experiencing a similar fate. In your opinion, do you buy this idea that President Sura Maposa wasn't entirely empowered to act earlier on his own accord. This idea that he had to go through the National Coronavirus Command Council, that he had to have this series of discussions before making the actions that he made, which then resulted in what is perceived to be a late and delayed reaction on the part of many members of society. I'm curious to find out where you stand on this idea that people in power in a political sense essentially have their hands tied and aren't able to act quicker on the developments of this virus as we as members of society would like them to be. I'm not sure if I believe that, you know, our leaders have their hands tied. I think that they've tied their own hands and they are, they, they're the ones who are struggling to make the decisions that need to be made. You're asking me a really complex question, and I'm not an insider, and neither am I a journalist. But what I can tell you is by just following journalists and then following scientists on media and listening to the stories, it is quite clear that our science community were warning government quite early on that we were heading for a third wave and that all the indicators were there. And that at a certain point, there was a warning also that we needed to take action. That government did not respond. We can hypothesize about why that didn't happen. We know that there was far more media attention and energy given to um, Kizir, the Minister of Health, who is on special leave at the moment, around the corruption, the more than 90 million that was kind of siphoned off by Stanley. Um, from the, the communication allocation of 150 million. Um, we know that there was a lot of noise around that while stats were beginning to, to show that we were heading for a very serious wave. We also know that there's been emphasis on economy and we just had those figures of unemployment come out, which are just mind-boggling and profoundly challenging for our country. So I don't know. I'm still quite surprised that Ramaphosa acted so late and so little. You know, when we went to level two, it really meant nothing, in my view. And if you think of level three, it's also had not a great deal of an impact. So certainly in certain businesses and certain government institutions, when you walk into those spaces, you can see the protocol being, you know, um, efficiently played out. But if you look at Brandenburg and you look at student life and young people life and those who just love party life, you know, I think EMCA ran a new story about that. But, you know, life was going on as if it was normal. And so we're, we're sitting in a complex space where I just feel that there, there, there's a fatigue, a serious fatigue and an anger. And so the people are just kind of trying to get on with their lives. 
And I think we have to remind ourselves that the mask is, is there to save, you know, to safeguard ourselves and each other. That, that taking care of ourselves with, through social distancing is important. And, and it's, there's no, you know, it's not, we're not, we're not living in a dictatorship per se. Um, these are simple scientific, uh, facts that we know that can help save us. Um, and at the moment in Gauteng, it's bad. It really is bad. It is indeed. Gauteng has been the worst hit. It accounts for nearly two-thirds of new cases measured over the last week. The increase in infections in Gauteng is now faster and steeper than it was at the same time in previous waves. That's a quote taken directly from the speech delivered to us by President Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, 15th of June 2021 is the exact date for those who like to keep... Yeah, and so, so there's some other stats, you know, if you, Dr. Suleiman's about 22 hours ago posted, you know, some graphic details in Gauteng we had 47 cases per 100,000 in the population. That is a lot. It's much higher than it's been before. In the last week, there was a 50% increase in infection rates in Gauteng. However, in other provinces, there are also exponential increases. Even though they are much lower on the graph, they are climbing very fast. And if you look at the graph, if you compare the first, second, and third wave, Gauteng now has superseded the first and second wave. We are way ahead. It's going where none of us imagined it would have gone. And I don't know about you, but I certainly am aware of friends, colleagues who are infected, who are struggling, people in hospital, and certainly people who have died. Indeed, indeed. I think we're at a stage now where it can't be that there's any of us who don't have some sort of direct reference to the impact of this pandemic. Now, when it comes to this idea of COVID fatigue, this idea of of a fractured nature in terms of the relationship that we have with these regulations that have been put in place, one of the things that immediately springs to my mind is this idea that the information surrounding this virus has not been disseminated to them in a way that is digestible for members of society, in a way that is easy to grasp, easy to comprehend, easy to understand. Right, and right. that comes from the very top. I'd like to get your insight, Warren, as far as where you think it went wrong, as far as this dissemination of this information down to the ground in a way that is most accessible to those on the ground. And in your estimation, what can be done to improve this? Oh, that's, that's a <laughs> challenging question. But I agree with you in terms of your diagnosis that this information is not being distilled and being shared and being assimilated and absorbed by our society um, at large. I think that there's an enormous amount of information out there that we can access and that we can educate ourselves about. The big question is why is it, as you are asking, why is it that people are not taking this information. So just starting on the very simple stuff of like what the Department of Health is doing nationally, um, the issues around vaccine, how many people are getting vaccinated, what the rollout is, what the, the procedures are, and what the latest news is. The Department of Health has an excellent WhatsApp program. You know, you can, be a, you can sign on to it 
and you get these very distinct, very clear, extremely well curated WhatsApp messages that inform you about the latest news around COVID. And it's simple, it's distilled. Um, there are multiple platforms, but for me, you know, I think that that for sometimes, if I can just talk about a kind of more of a cultural factor here in terms of our mental health, that we get trapped in a victimhood in this country. We blame, we get into blaming and othering, and so it's either Cyril's fault that we have to wear masks or it's so-and-so. We personalize it. We don't understand the full dynamics. And so, so many people that I have found and encountered in conversation don't understand that we in Africa, South Africa and the rest of Africa and the developing world are struggling to find ways in which to access the vaccine. And that is because of intellectual property and that there is a real need and has been, and, and our health journalists have been saying this for more than a year, that we needed to find other ways in which to lobby, to activate, to try and change the global circumstances so that we could access these vaccines. You know, and so today there was a major breakthrough um, that, you know, Cape Town is going to become the new hub in Africa for vaccine technology transfer. And it's going to be pivotal. But the truth is that the production of those vaccines will only happen in a year, two years, three years' time. And so Africa is now way behind. If you look at a global map of vaccinations, Africa is by far the last in terms of continents, in terms of getting vaccinated. We are like sitting in the 1% to 10% zone, mostly. There are two or three countries in Africa that have moved beyond 10%, one of them being Botswana. So, that, so all the lobbying and the activism that has need, been needed for a people's vaccine has, in my view, been lacking in South Africa. So we have a small group of health journalists and a small group of people who have been lobbying. And our government has been participating too, trying to make breakthroughs, trying to find ways in which to ensure that the IP regulations could be dropped. The U.S., Biden did agree that there could be a temporary waiver, what they call the TRIPS waiver. But the EU has tried to negotiate that. There is no time to negotiate. We are talking about people's lives here. And the same thing happened with HIV and AIDS. I had the personal experience of working in New York and watching people recover in a hospital with HIV and AIDS and education. I then came back to South Africa and witnessed hundreds of thousands of people dying. And it was only, you know, in the mid-2000s that HIV medication became really accessible and started changing the landscape in this country. We can't wait for another five years. It's ridiculous, as you say, to live with the anxiety and with this behavior, social distancing, isolation, mask wear is not human. It's not who we are. We are social beings. So I think it's important that your listeners get informed and become part of the activism that is necessary not only in this country, but globally. This is a global issue. It's not a national issue.
a global issue, not a national issue. Truer words have never been spoken. Thank you very much for that, Warren. Now... One of the other areas of interest that you and I particularly share an interest in is the avenue of the arts. And I'm curious to find out from you as far as your observations of the timing of the introductions of these tighter restrictions and the way in which they impacted the various artists, few though they may have been, to welcome small numbers of crowds into their theatres to watch these shows. It was it was a number that was cut down from 100 to 50 as far as indoor gatherings. In your opinion, how much damage does this do to the efforts being made by those within the artistic community to gather some sort of momentum to recover from the impact of this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's devastating. I mean, there is no doubt that the arts have been absolutely devastated in this pandemic. And I would argue it's one of the primary areas of devastation. But I think that because many artists work in the informal sector or work informally, so to speak, they are not necessarily accounted for. But one day when history is going to tell a really devastating story, There's no doubt about that. So, yes, the regulations had a devastating impact. And I I have to be honest with you that when I saw, because, again, um, as you you know, I've been following the news and following the stats and, and kind of talking to certain people, and it worried me, the timing, that in terms of understanding that a third wave was going to arise. And that was inevitable because of the back, you know, that we are way behind in the vaccine rollout. And I was wondering, was I think that we, we are, for the next year, we're going to need to plan our work more carefully. And we're going to need to plan it in relationship to the science. So that if we program ourselves, even just listening today, one of the scientists was saying we need to start preparing for our fourth wave. And I know that it's a terrible thing to hear when you just want to breathe and you just want to socialize and you want to relax and you want to do the things that you want to normally do. But it looks like a false way, you know, they were saying, you know, estimating towards the end of the year, you know, December. So we're kind of going in a cycle of of these waves and the vaccine rollout will still not be strong enough by then. So we're needing to plan so that we can use those moments where we come out of a wave and we can bring people together. Fine protocol, but like you say, there's a huge difference between having 100 people in the theater and 50. It has a huge economic impact, and there are a number of shows that had a close, heartbreakingly so. There's a major show that was supposed to open here in South Africa. Instead, they digitized it, and there's a screening in Germany. And the show will tour to Germany and then come back to South Africa, hopefully, when this wave is over. It's a complex game, and, I, and my heart sits with my colleagues hugely, and I know my own frustration. You know, we want to get on and do our work. Our work is by nature very social, interactive, involves, you know, lots of people, and, and <laughs> involves breath in a big way, symbolically, yeah. There was a piece of news that I think that we should share with your listeners, and that is the National Arts Festival won its case with a high court against the National Arts Council. 
the National Arts Council has to pay out the money that is owing to the National Arts Festival. They are not allowed to, to renege on that. And that case means that everybody else who's been affected in the arts community could make a case against the National Arts Council because they have been um, nothing but um, scandalous in their management of the COVID funds that were meant for artists and, uh, and it's seemingly very corrupt. I don't, we don't know all the facts, but what we do know is that they broke contract with many, many, many artists. Um, you know, they, they changed, they said that they, they didn't have enough money, they reduced the amount of money, they, um, contracts went missing, um, you know, there, there's a number, and people haven't been paid out, you know. This is something that I think is really disastrous in this country, and Ramaphosa are holding responsible. I believe that the president has reneged on the arts and culture community because from the sitting that Sibongile Ngoma uh, and, and all her colleagues from Iron for the Arts staged on our behalf um, uh, for more than 50 days, to not have a national response to that is just like, you know, in any other country, something would have been done. In this country, it's like just walk on by watch people suffer, let them do whatever, let them protest, let them have a voice, who cares? I go back to my comments. I think history is going to tell that, that this particular government did a great disservice towards its artists and is still doing so. Indeed, you heard it here first here on the COVID Report, a bit of exclusive news pertaining to developments between the National Arts Festival and the National Arts Council. And to conclude our discussion, Warren, being that we have the small matter of local government elections around the corner, in your opinion, what kind of bearing do you see the many observations that South African society has made on this government's ability to manage this COVID-19 crisis to put these measures in place to help protect the lives of the South African people. Do you see this having an impact on the numbers that are recorded when local government elections come around? Do you see this having any kind of change on the various political affiliations that members of society have made towards the various political parties as it pertains to the way in which this fight against the pandemic has unfolded here in South Africa? My first response is, the, is a cynical response. I don't think we're going to see much, anything much different. I think the ANC will you know, retain many, many, many seats and gain more seats. I think that we will see a very low vote to turn out. Uh, that's my cynical <laughs> first gut response. But I want to say that you know, local elections are about service delivery. It's about where we live. It's about gaining support, you know, from the government, whether it be on roads, water services, electricity, you know, just all the really important things that that matter in our living circumstances. And I think that we need to find a way in which to grow a new activism in our country that engages younger people in a kind of deep democracy 
where serious dialogue is, uh, takes place in our communities. And we talk about what is needed and what kind of candidates we need. Because this is, this is the one kind of election where we do have direct impact on who gets elected. You know, we have proportional representation in parliament level. But in local government election, we know who we're voting for. And so it should not be, a, in my opinion, I think at the moment, I'm still thinking about these things because I feel like our political landscape is really deeply problematic at the moment. There is a profound need for a progressive, social democratic leadership, an inspiring, visionary new leadership. I don't believe we have that in the country at the moment. I think we have the people that need to find each other and form that kind of leadership. But in local government, I think we can do something right now. And that is look for the people who can actually manage our towns, our villages, our cities in ways that will actually benefit the well-being of everybody. I'm currently in a very small town, and I, I am really shocked at the extent to which no, I'm not shocked. I'm being dramatic here. I just see what I see in the news and what I see when I travel through South Africa. Small towns falling, you know, roads falling apart. and like really like profound neglect. Government buildings half-built and incomplete. Enormous amount of money put into fencing properties that don't need to be fenced. So killing someone making money out of something. If I drive just out of a small little town, I'm in KwaZulu-Natal, in the hills, there was a soccer field that was plowed, 2.9 million was allocated for it. If I drive past there now, I can't even see the soccer field. It is simply bush and an expensive fence that was erected. Now, that kind of thing is what our local municipalities can do. And the question is, are young people going to get involved and are we going to find ways in which to activate communities? And I don't know. And I think that the COVID climate has made people deeply disillusioned and really broken. And the spirit in this country is profoundly broken. People have been humiliated and, and jobs have been lost and basic needs are not being met. And people are tired of being promised promises. You know, we just get promised promises. That's what happens. And psychologically, that is not healthy. So we've got to reinvent ourselves, reinvent the way we work democracy in this country. I also want to use the small town as an example where I am right now, is as you enter the town, you have to stop because the road has become hollowed out because there were a series of protests the ones in the blue moon kind of protest in this area. And the tar had melted away. So you literally have to stop. Anyone who doesn't know the area will have a serious accident. That protest did nothing. It did absolutely nothing. It had no impact whatsoever on service delivery because that was the protest. It was about service delivery. So something else needs to be done. We need to be much smarter in the way we protest in the way we galvanize. And the democracy is about who we elect into the position. So are you going to elect someone who doesn't know how to do the job, or are you going to elect someone who's going to be accountable to you? 
and he's going to answer your phone call when you've got a complaint or when you need something to be done. Indeed, mass change needed across the board. Our guest, Mr. Warren Neby, has been helping us unpack the toll that this continued fight against COVID-19 has continued to take on the South African people in multiple facets. We've covered so much ground. Warren, thank you so much for being an amazing guest here on the COVID Report. Thank you so much for the valuable insight you have given us into these conversations that, like I said earlier, we've had in multiple iterations over the course of our history here on the COVID report and I appreciate the valuable insight that you've been able to contribute to these matters. So again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a big pleasure. It's a big pleasure. Thank you so much and thank you for asking really critical questions and once again, congratulations. We thank you, Mr. Nibi. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or streams by www.varfm.co.za